0: Deep podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear, you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now to get right to the point. Uh, so Alan is out just off Japan. It's a really interesting area. Three hadel trenches basically come together. There's lots of interesting biology. Why are things in one trench and not others? And he's also tweeting quite a lot more so we will send a link to his Twitter channel as well so you can see what's going on while he's out there.
1: Some researchers in Japan have developed this coring system that's allowing them to visualise the animals with the calcified exoskeletons, so like bivalves, living below the surface of the sea floor. I think it's the first time that they managed to do this in situ. They actually went down to the deep sea to do this. So they did it off Hatsushima Hydrocarbon seep, which is in Saginami Bay in Japan. It was about 850 metres to 1,200 metres deep. They were able to uh, detect some clams that were living in the seabed. So they're completely invisible otherwise to the naked eye. Well, but yeah, they've managed to figure out how to see them under the muds, which is really exciting because now they can uh, have a look at how this interacts with the whole ecosystem. Cool stuff.
0: It turns out that sponges sneeze. Researchers in the University of Amsterdam have recorded two species of sponge expelling mucus as a sneeze. So sponges are filter feeders. They pull water in through their spongy pores, filter out anything that's delicious, and then sort of expel it, often through a a big sort of internal chamber. And those pores can become clogged. And so these researchers using stop motion filming to speed up the sponges, seeing how they contract their whole bodies to expel this material that they can't digest as like a a giant sneeze. It takes about half an hour. And so they believe this might be common to all sponges. We just haven't noticed it before. And so that includes our deep sea sponges as well. Well, speaking of the lovely giant isopod, the bathynomus, these are like the... The pill bugs, the wood lice, the giant deep sea variety of these. Uh, There's around 20 species within that genus. And we've got a new one. We've got a new species. It was captured in 2017 in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, just off the coast of the Yucatan, at about 600 to 800 meters deep. So they're pretty common in the Gulf of Mexico, actually. You just have to put some bait down and they turn up. And it was actually kept in an aquarium, Enoshima Aquarium, in Japan uh, since that time. And I guess the aquarists were looking at it and it's just like, that one's not like the others. That, one, that one's that one got some subtle differences. And yeah, backed up by genetics, turns out it is a new species. So we've got another giant deep sea isopod to add to your list. There's been a really interesting like equipment rescue. I don't think avalanche is the right word, uh, but the largest one recorded on Earth so far. So scientists were studying deep-sea currents in the Congo Canyon and they lost several of their sensors when a colossal deep-sea avalanche ripped through the canyon and detached these sensors from their moorings. And the sensors were contained in orange floats about the size of a football which floated to the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. So rescue boats managed to track them down months later, recover the data, and the data on the sensors revealed that a huge turbidity current traveling more than a thousand kilometers from the Congo River estuary into the deep sea, making it the longest avalanche of sediment ever measured on Earth. And it took two days for the flow to reach an ocean depth of more than 4,500 meters. So just a huge amount of material rolling down into the deep sea bed. This is a process that we see lots of evidence of. You know, we come back to an area and the benthos has changed and we've got fine material being discharged from rivers and every now and then that all slumps off and it all cascades and rolls down to the deep sea. And we see this in the trenches as well. And it can smother a lot of animals, but it is also bringing lots of biologically enriched sediment into the deep sea. So it's also a massive food source. It's incredible to sort of capture real data of one of these events.
1: Alvin's back in the water after his refit. So Alvin has had a 18-month refit. The submersibles returned to the water and has completed a historic dive to 6,453 metres. So all of these new upgrades that Alvin's had over the last 18 months is what's allowed the submarine to go to a maximum dive rating. And it originally was 4,500 metres deep and now it's been extended to a new limit of 6,500 metres. This sub had to make this historically deep dive in order to pass these new dive restrictions. So Alvin's back and he can now go even deeper than ever.
0: So on the last episode, Alan mentioned getting some emails asking him to go hunting a mysterious object that fell into the ocean. A few more details have been sort of published on this. So back in 2014 an object crashed into the ocean just off the coast of Papua New Guinea. The The trajectory that it entered Earth's atmosphere would indicate that it's from beyond our solar system. So that would make it incredibly interesting to study. But the data that allowed us to know that came from the US Department of Defense spy satellites. So they are a bit cagey about the actual specifics, but recently Space Force confirmed in a tweet, the data is accurate enough to confirm that this object came from outside our solar system and they've identified a 10 kilometer square search area to look for this. It's probably about half a metre wide when it crashed, but it probably fragmented. So this is a very difficult thing to be looking for. I mean, if you sent an actual vehicle down there, you're probably only seeing a couple of meters at a time within your spotlights. So the upside of that is that it is likely to be magnetic, and there's a team planning to hunt it using a toad magnet. Really interesting to see if something comes with that. So on our last few episodes, we kept coming back to cavey critters and the interesting parallels between evolution within the dark deep sea and evolution within cave systems. We heard from a listener who uh, had some comments on this.
2: Hi, my name is Martin, and I just finished listening to episode 25, and the question was brought up, is there bioluminescence in submerged cave systems? I've been cave diving for the past 17 years, as well as have a strong educational background in developmental genetics. I have never seen bioluminescence in a submerged cave. It's just too darn energy demanding for these critters. Plus, since they have no eyes, it would be an evolutionary waste of energy as well. Plus, in caves visited by divers, fish outside the cave like to fall fire the caves and eat up all the blind critters. Those fish left behind in the dark would most certainly eat up any critters with bioluminescence, thereby ending any point mutation that developed in the first few hundred meters of the cave pretty quickly. I also discussed this topic with an explorer I know who's been exploring caves with heavy biofilm term bacterial caves. I call them snot caves because the bacterial mats tend to look like big old snots hanging off the walls. She has also never seen anything remotely similar to bioluminescence. As for blind critters, most of the species in caves are small anthropods or crustaceans. However, fish and blind salamanders are down there as well are pretty cool. I think there was one salamander in Eastern Europe that they put a marker on that did not move for about seven years, whereas another one was quite active and moved a meter or two in a whole year. So they are pretty conservative about their energy expenditures. As for the loss of eyes, the Mexican blind cave tetra has recently been shown to have lost their eyes due to epigenetic changes as opposed to DNA mutations, resulting in the genes responsible for eye development to be silenced. They start eye development as embryos, but the process is quickly aborted and the residual eye tissue is quickly reabsorbed. A recent study made in Mexican cave tetras from different isolated cave systems and found that 40% of their offspring regained Development of functional eyes showing that each cave species had different genes methylated and thus silent. And for the record, for Old Spice antiperspirants, I prefer Fiji sent over deep sea. Thanks.
0: That got us thinking. And I've got to learn about caves. We are lucky enough to be joined by Thomas Iliff, a hugely successful cave biologist, contributed immensely to the field throughout his career. Uh, he's recently retired as a professor of marine biology at Texas A&M University, where he's based since 1989. And prior to this, Tom worked for 11 years as a research scientist at the Bermuda Biological Station, uh, which is where he became interested in marine cave biology. And his work has resulted in the discovery of over 250 new species, 55 new genera, seven new families, and three new orders. So thanks so much for coming on, Tom. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I suppose the first thing is, you're probably wondering why you're on the Deep Sea podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We have often said that they're more shaped by being dark sea animals than by being particularly deep sea animals. It is that very specific predator-prey interaction in the near-complete darkness that has shaped these animals. And parallels with cave biology sort of kept coming up. There's so many similarities that the differences actually teach us a lot. So thanks for coming in as an outside expert who can help us to contextualize this.
3: So my specialty deals with animals living in saltwater caves. And the caves I work with are located along the coastlines of islands, of peninsulas. And the caves are close enough to the ocean that at depth there's normal marine saltwater. And the animals that are inhabiting are marine species that have had their origins from the ocean, that have invaded the caves, and have stayed there for long periods of time. A few of these animals that we're studying have close relatives, actually, in the deep sea. And the cave and the deep sea habitat, as you mentioned, are quite similar in many ways. So they're both totally dark habitats, they're both habitats in which The amount of food is limited. And so in some caves, as well as in the deep sea, there's chemosynthesis. So chemosynthesis is the production of organic matter and food with use of chemical energy rather than light energy. So in the caves and in the deep sea, we have some very familiar or very similar phenomena going on. And also uh, we have some very similar animals. So it may be that caves are not just limited to shallow water depths, they may extend down the sides of islands and seamounts into the deep ocean,
0: and there may be caves and cave animals in the deep sea. I bet there are, actually. That's going to be completely beyond our current study right now. We wouldn't want to put a submarine into too deep of a cave. Yeah, there's probably whole dedicated deep-sea cave communities that maybe we've not even seen yet. How are these caves sort of typically forming? The
3: caves that we deal with are mostly in limestone rock and occasionally in volcanic rock as lava tube caves. Well, when we began diving in these caves, we found that in the limestone caves anyway, there were massive stalactites and stalagmites, And so these are the same mineral formations that are found in limestone caves on land. Now, stalactites and stalagmites only form by dripping water, so they have to form in air. And so when we found them in these underwater caves, that's clear proof that these caves had to have been dry for very, very long periods of time. And so this was during the ice ages. Sea level was as much as 120, 130 or more meters lower than it is today. So all of the caves, basically, that we've been diving in, sea level was down far enough that these caves were completely dry, completely air-filled, and this happened for very, very long periods of time, tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. It raises the question, where did the cave animals live When the caves were all dry and air filled. And that relates back to what I mentioned earlier that we don't know how deep or how far these caves extend down. So there's still a lot to be unearthed in the work that we're doing. My preconceived notions, which in science are typically very wrong, I thought that the animals would have close relatives in the open ocean in the area around the caves. And so I had a hobby of exploring caves and I had a hobby of scuba diving. And when I landed in Bermuda with my first job, we went into the cave. So I looked down underwater and I could see tunnels going off and disappearing into the darkness. And that had me intrigued. So I got some friends of mine from Florida who were cave diving instructors. So we began diving in the caves. And as I mentioned, as we went deeper, we got into saltwater layers. And there in the saltwater, we saw all sorts of small animals swimming about. So I collected a few of these animals, and I sent them off to a scientist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, asking if he could take a look at them for me. I got an email back from him, and he said, Tom... I've never seen anything like this in my <laughs> life. Uh, this is the world's expert on crustaceans, and he tells me he's never seen anything like it in his life. Well, that's pretty good. Good way to start, right?
0: So this was a totally virgin environment. Nobody had explored these habitats before. Nobody
3: had been there because you have to use cave diving. So it's not just regular scuba diving. There's very special procedures for diving in caves. Every single dive that we did during our training course was going into a completely new and unexplored cave. So we had no idea what to expect.
0: (laughs) Once you started realizing that there was a unique biology down here, are there common themes across the major orders within caves?
3: Absolutely, there are. We have typically eyes that are very reduced or degenerated or totally absent. With a few minor exceptions, pigment is usually totally missing, so the animals are completely white. But they do tend to have longer appendages, especially antennae, uh, with mechanoreceptors on them, so they can sense movement of water and movement of other organisms in the caves. They do have uh, advanced metabolic features that are able to slow down the rate of metabolism and therefore use less energy to get by. One of the most amazing things was many of the animals were not just new species, they were totally new higher groups of organisms, previously unknown from anywhere else on the planet. I was doing this work in Bermuda and I said, well, what the hell is going to be in caves elsewhere? So there's underwater caves in a number of other places that are very similar in many ways to the saltwater caves we had in Bermuda. So I started going out to some of these different locations, and we found very similar types of organisms in the caves in Bermuda, in the caves in Yucatan, in the Bahamas. Oftentimes, we have a hypothesis that these animals had their origins very early on in the history of the formation of the world's oceans, in particularly the Atlantic Ocean, when the continents were all squeezed very close together. And as these continents began to move apart, we had animals that were living in one area, being separated into two groups. And so these animals tend to be very ancient forms that help to explain not only evolution on the planet, but also the movement of continents
0: and geology. We see similar in the deep sea. There are groups that used to be abundant in the world's oceans that almost got outcompeted by modern forms. Absolutely. So there's a lot of uh, tie-ins here between the caves and
3: the deep sea in so many different ways.
0: Could you take us through the trophic levels? What does it look like as a habitat?
3: We've still got a lot of work to do, but I can fill you in on what we know. We have a simpler food web, but we do have predators, including blind cave fish. And we have very unusual organism that is only in these saltwater caves. It's an animal called Remipedia. Now, Remipedia is a crustacean But it looks more like a centipede, but it's not in any way, shape, or form related to the centipedes. It's a predator. It has venom-injecting fangs. It's the only crustacean that's known that has venom-injecting fangs. Also, these animals are hermaphroditic. That means they have both male and female organs in the same individual. We know very little about the life history and reproduction, but we did find in one cave larvae, and we know which species they belong to because we sequenced the DNA from the larvae and we compared it to an adult that lives in the same cave, and we got an exact match. Uh, Right now, there's 30 different species of remipede, but for 29 of them, we know absolutely nothing about reproduction and the development.
0: Do you think they radiated from a single ancestor, one common ancestor, and then as they specialize in each cave, they've been isolated time and time again? So that's
3: anybody's guess. Uh, (laughs) But most of these animals are found in the Caribbean area, in the bahamas there's 20 different species of remipedes just from the bahamian archipelago this feels a
0: lot like our hadal snailfish we find them incredibly spread apart the the genetics is looking like there was a single common ancestor and then each time they went into a trench, they kind of speciated and got isolated, and these these groups aren't mixing anymore. Sure, and this is true not only of remipedes, but quite a few other of the cave
3: animals that we have. Many of the species are known only from one cave and nowhere else on the planet, and that raises a lot of concern and a lot of issues relating to conservation, because mm-hmm. these caves are located close to the coastline. They're in areas where touristic development is placing high value on the land. Oftentimes, the water from the caves is pumped up and utilized in the resorts or also that the wastewater in the resorts goes down into the caves and pollutes the groundwater and the cave water. There's other places where building of golf courses has destroyed caves or filled them in. Many caves have been used for solid waste dumps, so what better place to throw your garbage? Than a hole in the ground. It's already there for you to dump your garbage in. We feel that there's been many, many species that have literally become extinct because of the actions of humans. So that's why we're kind of in a race to discover, to describe. And one of the reasons why I'm excited to be here is I want to tell people the story of what amazing animals what an amazing environment we have under our feet we don't even know about it and we're in the process of destroying and polluting and killing off organisms that we don't even know and now we'll never know about in the caves that we're studying there's actually a stacked layers of water of different composition So at the very surface of the caves, there's oftentimes fresh water. And as you go down, there's a very sharp boundary called the halo climb. Here we have salt content separating different water masses. So different animals that can live in different water masses right on top of one another. But as soon as you get down into the deeper water, the water in these caves is exceptionally clear. There's essentially no particulate matter. So when we do see something in the water, almost certainly it's an animal. So one of the ways we find animals, we pan our light. And if we see a bright white speck, that's an animal. We have a little uh, bottle that we fill up with water from the uh, layer where the animal is living. And we very carefully Get the animal to swim into our bottle, and we know exactly where this animal came from. Oh, what an experience! It's like nothing else. Oh, it's it's really a thrill. It, it's a combination of adventure, science, and discovery. And it's so cool because we're right there. It's not like you're in a submarine. And you're watching through a window, and a mechanical arm is going out trying to catch something. We're right there. We're sticking our arm out and collecting, being there with the animals firsthand. And it's just such an exciting adventure. These animals have very small populations, so we don't want to overcollect. So we're very mm-hmm. careful to only collect what we need, to respect limited populations, but you really have to do some collection in order to be able to tell people, hey, this really cool stuff is there. So if we never collected, if we never did any science, we wouldn't know it's there and there'd be no reason that we could put on the table to protect and preserve these very fragile, delicate environments. We go to the same cave, I would say there's no cave I've ever been in on the planet that I couldn't go back to it today and find new animals that I didn't <laughs> know about. So there's always things to discover. I'm never done with the Discovery phase, even in a single cave. Also, in addition to finding the animals, now there's new techniques that come out. We want to sequence the animals. We're doing work looking at the uh, nervous system, the digestive system of these animals, looking at uh, metabolic processes in them. And there's so much to be discovered. Open your eyes up and look all the way around you, and there's so many things. In this world, left to be discovered and described, that there's plenty to keep you busy. And the next thing is to find out how deep these caves can go. We're limited by human physiology as far as depth looking for cave animals. How deep can a human go is not necessarily how deep a small crustacean can go in the caves.
0: Thanks so much for your time, Tom. I, I really enjoyed that.
3: Good. It's always. Cool to learn things that are new, right?
0: And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Amata Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.